Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just past four o'clock, but that's time for Tuesday Home Time. Jan Bartlett here with you today until 6pm. Today, part two of the interview with Monica Kiley, who spent three months in Palestine, Israel, as an unarmed civilian protective person and a human rights monitoring person as well, in occupied West Bank and annexed East Jerusalem. The Port Phillip Bay keeper, Neil Blake, is back talking about his work around the bay and with the people in the areas. Dr Tim Anderson and the verdict on his expulsion from the University of Sydney and an update on Venezuela. And in the final part of the program, Catherine Cummins from Mindwatch Canada and her fact-finding visit to the Oceana Gold Mine in the Philippines. But first, good news, he's back, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane List, I'm going to return for the year in dangerous... What's that noise? It, it sounds like a loud groan. I, I, was, I wasn't expecting that. Well, I'm going on regardless. Return for the year in dangerous times as Big Supremo scuttled them more late, son, and our protector of freedoms of our security, Constable Peter Duffer, warn us we're about to be overrun by boat people. And doesn't that bring back tragic memories of James Cook and Arthur Phillip and the boat people who followed them? Because uh, we know what that did to the local population, the disaster that followed. And Scuttle them and Peter are warning us it could happen again. No, no stronger. It's about to happen again. And as an aside, that's why they also want us to keep remembering Arthur Phillips' arrival as a boat person with a great national holiday so we don't forget the tragedy. And Peter warned us that not only will we be overrun, but those overrunning us will be evil child molesters, pedophiles, sexual predators. None of us will be safe, and we all know who's to blame for all this, don't we? The bloody socialists. They're out of control. Wanting us to treat no proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people like real human beings. Treat them literally when they're unwell, for goodness sake. Allowing them to enter this country until they're well before sending them back to what made them unwell. Ignoring the inevitable consequences for this security, for this country and this madness, this disregard for national security has forced poor Scuttle them to reopen Christmas Island Paradise Prison Camp because thanks to the socialists and the naive crossbench lot whom the socialists supported, the people smugglers have got the message True Blue Aussie is once again open for business. And although we can't know the details for security reasons, it's in our interest not to know, our dedicated border force has been turning boats around for eons and sending these child molesting pedophiles, sexual predators back to where they came from, to the persecution they were fleeing, well claim they were fleeing, but why do I get that certain feeling that pretty shortly a number of these boats will somehow penetrate the border force protection 
and prove the socialists have put us all at grave risk to life, limb and genitals. And the only consolation in all this is that the socialists treating these illegals as real human beings doesn't run to allowing them to be real human beings in true blue Aussie. But their compassionate policy is they'll work harder to find a country to ship them off to as long as it isn't true blue Aussie. On the no proper papers lot enjoying our holiday island hospitality at great public expense, but expense undertaken with thorough responsibility and due diligence, like this contract to provide security on Manus Island awarded to a mob called the Paladin Group, 423 million of our hard earned over the past 20 through 22 months, and extended on January 3, while the country was in holiday slumber, Paladin, who I hear? Well, Paladin is run by an ex-Trublawazi trained killer and another bloke with no fixed addresses. The trained killer who has left huge debts all over the Pacific and Asia before changing the names of his Phoenix companies. Another director now charged with 106 counts real figure of fraud and money laundering. Experts claiming the profit margin from our public largesse is huge, even by their standards, helped by paying the local workforce a pittance and Paladin's office address a shed down a dirt track on Kangaroo Island with no postal contact showing the extent of the due diligence Constable Duffer's lot undertook on our behalf. Now after this was exposed by the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, Constable Duffer said he couldn't reveal details of the contract for security reasons. But then, as the proverbial hits the fan and he was covered in it, justified his role as the responsible minister by declaring he had nothing to do with the contract. I knew, like you know, nothing. And Constable Duffer knowing nothing is a most reasonable explanation, although somewhat unnecessary, given we all know he knows nothing, and proudly displays it. And although the Capitalist Review led the exposure of this rort, it couldn't help itself this morning, laying much of the blame for Paladin being handed millions of our hard-earned, with no tender process, on refugee advocates who forced big corporate trans the refugees to abandon the contract and change its name to Broad Spectrum to avoid the ongoing ignominy, hoping people will forget that Broad Spectrum felled the refugees. But anyway, listener, if you've attended any rally supporting illegal boat people or done anything to suggest they should be released from their island paradise prisons, then I hate to say it, but it's your fault that we're all being ripped off. And the responsible minister knows absolutely nothing about it and therefore can't be held responsible for that for which he is responsible. Although Constable Duffer can show he can be responsible like his attempts to deport from True Blue Aussie to Indigenous men. Even by their standards a first, the ultimate solution to the problems these bloody Indigenous people cause like also wanting to be treated like real human beings. Yet just a few weeks ago, I thought the boat people invasion had already begun when members of the caring business class government were leaping overboard like, dare I say it, like rats leaping off a sinking. But we were assured by Scuttle them and what was left of the team, it was all for personal reasons and nothing to do with that sinking feeling they were about to lose their job. 
And I felt really guilty at the thoughts I'd had about the Minister for Smashing Evil Unions and Evil Workers, Kelly Odawire, Workers So Evil, when Scuttle them informed us she was leaving to add to her dear little family and how she had suffered and how we must all love her, which was a big ask, but I decided I would love her because she had suffered so much after setting up the Bank Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission to get union and workers' hands off all that lovely workers' money and hand it to the banks and the government's respectable friends. The brilliant plan backfired and the Commission nailed the very people to whom poor Kelly wanted to hand the money and so we have to be nice to Kelly and I want to say how sorry I am that I used the word rat for that lot who have done so much for this country and are doing a hell of a lot more by leaping overboard. By the by, Scuttle them with all the sincerity he can muster, denies his we're about to be overrun screeching is a scare tactic other than he did admit, I'm scared of losing my job. Bit of a nasty environment in Canberra when a former One Notion member, and there's plenty of them, staged a 12-round bout in the corridors of make-believe power with one of that appalling Hoonsun's advisers and accused that appalling of making improper approaches to him which had had that appalling falling about in stitches. I can't stop laughing! But I feel there may be something in the allegation because the accuser got off the canvas to tell us the first alleged approach occurred at a place called Rooty Hill. So there might be something in it. The fossils who know coal is critical to our true Lewazi economy, it's now our most lucrative export, and don't forget we're going to meet our Paris commitment on our ear, possibly because we will have collapsed from the air we're forced to breathe, fossils who know are calling for the smelling salts and oxygen masks after the New South Wales Land and Environment Court, Chief Justice, ruled against a new Hunter Valley coal mine, declaring its contribution to climate change, social impact, and the Paris commitments must be taken into account. The fossils point out that any proposal, not only coal, which emits CO2, could be rejected based on his honour's outrageous decision. Leading the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs to demand the decision be appealed. Its supremo John Risk comes with profit to declare it a sovereign risk. His honour did not understand our obligations under the Paris Agreement. Uh, which are, John? Uh, well, essentially, do nothing. The Troubler was the Minerals Profits Council gasped, there is a lot in the judgment that could be argued differently. Not sure that wasn't a veiled or not so veiled attack on the company Gloucester Resources legal team and big coal power station Baron, Trevor St. Baker the Planet, couldn't believe such illegality. I thought judges had to apply the law, Trevor reached for a cognac. What has been quoted in his judgment hardly accords with the law as I understand it. Understandable, of course, because the law, as Trevor understands, is that he and his lot can do whatever they like. They all agreed the judge, Brian Preston, had ignored the law and imposed his personal views. Dicta being the legal term. So just for the record, a lawyer who represents the big end of town this week said Preston judge, Preston's judgment was based on, wait for it, the law. Which we must question, listener, because how outrageous that an environment court should consider the environment in a judgment. As Trevor would say, it's not the environment I know. 
Therefore, finally, aren't we lucky here in Victoria, we have the good old EPA, which never upsets the fossils by irresponsibly taking the environment into account. Good afternoon. Well, he's certainly back with a vengeance, isn't he? That's Mr Kevin Healy. And I believe he's already started his program on Wednesdays, 9 o'clock city limits. So that's something to look forward to tomorrow morning here on 3CR between 9 and 10 o'clock. And just a reminder that it is Listener Sponsor Month, the month of February. We need lots of people to make sure that this radio station keeps going. And a little bit of... um, support for all the wonderful volunteers who work here to keep the station going. It's 40-something years now, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Hi, I'm Jacob from a Friday Rave, and I'm also on 3CR's Committee of Management. Now, the community of passionate people that founded 3CR a long time ago made some tough decisions. For a start, they committed themselves and a growing community of listeners to back their vision of owning our station and, in doing so, remaining independent of the government and corporate influence. They did this by fundraising, brick by brick, with working bees, door knocks, on-air drives and all the rest of it. You've all been there. Now, their commitment has kept 3CR on air for over 40 years. That's a long time even in my life. But now, we need your commitment to keep this great thing going. Now you can subscribe online at 3cr.org.au or phone us at the station on 9419 8377 or even stop me on the bloody street if you see me at some rally or other and ask me for a membership form. You need to become a member of Melbourne Radical Radio and subscribe. And now to the second and final part of my interview with Monica Kiley. Monica was deployed to Palestine, Israel by Act of Peace in April 2018, where she participated in the ecumenical accompanying program for Palestine and Israel and contributed to unarmed civilian protective presence and human rights monitoring in at-risk communities in the occupied West Bank and annexed East Jerusalem. Any views or opinions herein? do not necessarily represent those of Act of Peace or EAPPI. Human Rights Defenders, was it your role to accompany Human Rights Defenders? So that's something that that I didn't do during my time there, really, but I believe that in different placements and over the course of the program history that that has happened, but I probably am not the best one to speak to in regard to that because, yeah, I wasn't involved. House demolitions, where were they happening when you were there? Yeah, so house demolitions happen all throughout East Jerusalem and the West Bank. And that was one of the, the major things that we did in East Jerusalem. And they would happen in most Palestinian neighbourhoods, to be yeah, to be perfectly fair. So since the occupation began in 1967, everybody has the building permits. Um, the authority that controls building permits is Israel. And for Palestinians, there's about 98% of building permits that are denied. So you think about that, you know, that's over 50 years of not being able to put an extension on your house, not being able to renovate a nursery, not being able to, I don't know, patch up a ceiling on 
on your house, and it literally is as simple as being able to get the materials to patch up a ceiling that has been eaten away by mould or something like that over the last few decades. What that means is that Palestinians kind of don't really have a lot of choice in building illegal, what they call illegal structures, an extra room on the house or renovations or whatever it might be, building a whole new house. I mean, some of the things that you also have to consider over 50 years is population growth. There's a lot of pressure to to build. And once you've built an illegal structure, it's not as though, you know, that extra nursery you've built is going to be demolished and that's it. It's an entire house that will go because some element of it has been built illegally. Yeah, what that means is that house demolitions are actually pretty common throughout East Jerusalem and the West Bank. So, for example, if I can take you back to a house demolition that I attended on one of my very first days there, there were four businesses on the ground floor and then there were three floors, each belonging to a different family of residential housing above. And that whole complex was demolished, the entire thing. And they had been given no warning whatsoever. So no demolition order, no knock at the door with a verbal, you know, hey, we're going to be demolishing your house in the morning. But just literally an explosion on their front gate and the entrance of bulldozers. For the next, you know, five or six hours, they were watching their homes be demolished. And not only that, but if I was then told that all of the surrounding, most of the buildings in this suburb have been built illegally for all of those reasons that I had, have just explained. So that at any time, essentially the same thing can happen to the homes around them. And this is all part of the, the demographic war. Because East Jerusalem was annexed by Israel, Israel now has you know, a lot of Palestinians. And Palestinians don't have the same access to voting and they can vote in school councils and things like that, but they don't have full voting rights. But what that means that bad press to Israel if they don't have the same rights. But to give them to them would mean that the the shape of Israel or the, the culture of Israel would be quite affected by the hopes and desires and wishes of Palestinian people who are currently subjected to a huge amount of discrimination and violations of their rights. The idea at this stage, you know, not always stated, but it is very clear that Israel is trying to ethnically cleanse East Jerusalem and push these people out. A way of doing that is to make it impossible for them to live peaceful, happy and content lives in that area. And this is also part of the reason why settlers are moving into the West Bank. So this is you know, a concerted effort over many, many years. But you know, that means that people like me who go in to monitor human rights are comforting men, women and children at 9 o'clock in the morning while they, you know, explain to me how all of their personal documents have been buried below the rubble. You know, there's one family that had literally, the only thing that they had been able to say was a box of dates as they ran out their door. Yeah, really, really powerful stuff. So what you're saying is just this one instance, a a shopkeeper has lost all his goods, his livelihood. Multiple families have lost 
everything they had and they probably didn't have a lot anyway, where do they go? That's a good question. So that's another aspect of our role is that we document the needs. So those families do need accommodation, they do need potentially legal assistance, they need psychiatric care if they, if they want it. And so the information that we're gathering while we're there is then fed into the United Nations Humanitarian Affairs Organisation and then they contact organisations like the Red Cross for families who need, for example, emergency, an emergency tent to sleep in that night or they, whatever service it is, it's part of a protection architecture that we're feeding that information into. And then the other thing is that the family and the community structures are very, very tight and so a lot of people will opt to stay with family, whether that be in like nearby in Jerusalem or whether that be uh, in the West Bank. But as a result, it means that you know if they do go and stay in the West Bank, there's a law, and I don't quote me on the years, but there's a certain amount of time when if you haven't been living in East Jerusalem as a Palestinian, your residency is revoked. So if you leave for a certain a certain number of years or if you are unable to prove that your centre of life is in East Jerusalem, then you lose your residency, which means that you're then pushed either into the West Bank or you become refugees in generally staying in you know, Lebanon or Jordan or somewhere else or moving further abroad. But a lot of these families do go and stay with you know, relatives and friends and, and that sort of thing, which means that, again, housing density is a real, real issue. What you've mentioned, is that the extent of your work there or whether was there more? Yeah, there's definitely more. So what else did we do? We spent a lot of time, there's a village called Karnalakma, which is a Bedouin community, and that's quite close to Jerusalem, but it is in the West Bank, and that really uh, merits the mention. This community has been uh, targeted for, well, initially they were refugees from the Negev in what is now the state of Israel. And then they were sort of displaced within Palestine in the 50s again after that. And they have established themselves in yeah this little village called Karnalakma. Uh, and they've been there for, since, yeah, since the early 50s. And in about 2009, I think it was, they built a school using funds from an Italian organisation and they got around the, the the lack of having a building permit because they used tyres to build this school. And that school is, it's just little. I think it services maybe 100, and, from memory again, 153 students. And it has become a real sort of symbol of resistance and also being a symbol of resistance, a real target. And during my time there, there are 181 at my was the, the number of people that were there in that village when I was working there last year. Yeah, 181 people are at risk of being forcibly displaced. But because of that international effort, because of the protective accompaniment of organisations like EAPPI and like Teyush, which is an Israeli organisation, because of their presence in that village and international advocacy, we have actually been able to sort of at the very least, delay the, the displacement of this village, which is great. But um, 
you know, their, their situation is still very, very precarious. And, you know, for example, that village at the time that I was there again was subjected to monitoring by drones. And these drones are, they had, this happened twice a day, every day. And the morning shift was a military drone and then the afternoon shift was a settler drone. And these drones would come along and they would video villages. They would hover at window height and watch women cooking in their kitchens. They would follow children around as they played in the yard. You know, like, just the most horrendous kind of harassment, ongoing harassment. But that community's you know, strongest wish was that they didn't have to move because they there was a site that had been sort of singled out as a place to relocate them to. But it was entirely insufficient. It was a place called Abu Dis, which is right next door to a rubbish dump. The amount of land that was allocated is you know, nowhere near sufficient. And the other thing to point out is that Bedouins are pastoralists. So they have they make their living off the land. They make their living off their animals. And there was nowhere to house any of their animals and nowhere to grow anything. So it wasn't just going to be a simple shift somewhere else. It was a massive, massive change and the extinction of their Bedouin traditions, essentially, that were at risk. But, I mean, there are, there are lots and lots of different examples. I could talk for hours about this stuff, Jan. <laughs> you were there when the new US Embassy opened? Yeah. Um, what was that like? Yeah, that was strange, actually. It was, again, because of all of these checkpoints that sort of surround the city of Jerusalem, the protest itself outside the embassy was a lot smaller than I had anticipated because people weren't actually able to get into the city to protest. But outside the US embassy, there was, there was a small protest, but mostly the people that were attending were Jerusalemites, so like uh, Palestinians and Israelis who have residency in the city. So it was also in many ways quite a tame protest because if you were involved in any kind of you know, violence or anything, then you could pretty much guarantee as a Palestinian that you would have your residency revoked and... Residency of Jerusalem is obviously a very sought-after yeah, a thing. That's just one aspect. But having said that, there were also some cases of police brutality and it was really difficult in those moments to see what sparked the protest, like what sparked that brutality. I mean, I remember approaching the protest itself and there was a lot of press and, and that's important as well, I should say, because, you know, with a lot of press, there's a lot of that accountability that, I, that we're talking about in terms of deterring violence quite strong. But anyway, a lot of press, and then there were the border police, and then on the other side, this small, maybe, really, it's very difficult to estimate crowds, but maybe 200, 300 people potentially protesting. And... For the most part, it was really, really peaceful. There, was, there were a lot of women who were sort of singing and chanting and, and leading the march at one stage. And, or not the march, the protest. But the other thing, yeah, but we as observers are sort of on the outskirts and sort of monitoring from 
a little bit of a distance as well because we're very conscious that things can change quickly. But for the most part, it was pretty tame in you know compared to my expectations. There were definitely people who, yeah, were, had been punched and sort of taken away and carted off into military vehicles and. Yeah, it's very difficult to, to see exactly what was going on, but very interesting. Did you develop friendships with Palestinians or was that sort of outside your brief? I mean, the Palestinians mostly that I was working with in terms of the people who yeah, are running the program, I guess, are the, are, the, are the people that I would call real friends and the same goes with Israelis. But in terms of... You know, key contacts within the communities and things. I, I was very conscious of how it looks to one side or the other in terms of becoming really friendly. So there are definitely people that I'm fond of and that I maintain professional contacts with and I would love to be able to go back and just not be working. But I guess because we're an impartial presence, it, I was really conscious that to be particularly friendly to one side or the other can actually be a dangerous thing to do in terms of safety. So, yeah, there are people I'm really fond of, but... Difficult to leave after your three months? In many ways it was. And then on, on the other hand, it was a really, really intense three months of learning, not just in terms of you know, the, the conversations that I was having and the people that I was, and the situations that I was witnessing. But also, there's a lot of training that goes on. So there's that 10 days when you first arrive and then there's a midterm orientation where we go off and we listen to lots of different perspectives on the occupation. So we listen to academics talk about the occupation. We listen to various Israeli organisations talk about the occupation various Palestinian um, organisations talk about the occupation and their work and it's just full on and so I really, like I would love to go back but I think at the end of that three months I thought, you know what, this is a really good amount of time to get a sense of what's going on here and to really, you know, deepen that understanding of the occupation and the the hugely complex relationships that that are happening but also it was a good time for me to come back and reflect and sort of take stock of what I had witnessed. And I think if I were now to go back, I might have a little bit more in me, like I could maybe stay a little bit longer and, and not feel so like if I were to con- you know, if I were to stay beyond three months, I wouldn't necessarily feel overwhelmed. But I think I was getting to the point where I thought, you know what, it's time for me to process this. You've continued your support for Palestine and Palestinians since you've been back? Yeah, I have. Yeah, so I'm doing a little bit of fundraising to support the deployment of more human rights observers to Palestine and Israel. And I'm also yeah, trying to stay as engaged as possible with Palestinians in, in Melbourne and in my own community. And also having said that, I'm also... Israelis and, and you know I have Jewish family and so I'm really keen to yeah learn more about Judaism and the the history of the of the Jewish people and you know why Israel is so important and why the creation of the state was so important and really seen as a safe haven 
after the Holocaust. And, I'm, yeah, I'm really, really fascinated by that. And I'm also getting into my own personal family history and stuff at the moment as well. So, yes, I'm staying engaged for sure. You're fundraising? I am fundraising, yeah. How, how are you doing that? Yeah, so I am doing lots of presentations. I've presented in various community organisations and I'm also, I've got a fundraising page as well. So, Which is? Uh, you can find it, actually, I might give you my Twitter handle, at Monica, M-O-N-I-C-A-J-K-E-I-L-Y. It's a Twitter. It is, yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, Monica, and I'm sure that you're also disturbed by the, by the news in the last few weeks that the World Council of Churches have pulled out their ecumenical accompanying program in the Hebron area. Yeah, it is really, really concerning. So just to clarify, they haven't fully pulled out of Hebron but are currently not operating in H2, which is a particular area, and it is uh, the high-risk area, I suppose. But there's a lot of conversation ongoing about how we can sort of maintain, not, I guess, abandon the communities that we have strong relationships with at the moment. So a really, really tricky situation and that follows the withdrawal of an organisation called TIP which does similar protective presence work in Hebron and TIP was sort of established under the Oslo Accord so that's been there for a long time but their, yeah, their contract hasn't been renewed by Israel so really, really concerning and a massive crackdown more broadly happening on human rights advocates in Israel and Palestine, which we need to, yeah, monitor really, really closely. And that was Monica Kiley. That was part two of a, a longer interview I recorded with Monica a couple of weeks ago about her time in the occupied West Bank and annexed East Jerusalem as a human rights observer back in between April and July last year. It's 4.34 and um, this is one other way that you can help. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Let the mythical tarantula bite you at the 2019 Taranta Festival. Five days of southern Italian and Mediterranean music, food and culture from March 13 to 17. Including the exclusive Melbourne concert by the 2018 Song Lines Music Awards Best Group in the World, Cantoniera Grecanico Salentino, direct from Italy via Juan Adelaide, at the Thornbury Theatre, Friday, March 15. The festival includes talks, workshops, concerts and parties. For information and tickets, visit tarantafestival.com.au Presented by Devella, a 3CR store.
over a number of months I've been speaking with Dr Tim Anderson about the campaign by the University of Sydney to expel him for his quote-unquote offence to Israel. Two weeks ago, a review committee of three affirmed Provost Stephen Garton's decision to expel him and as Tim has written, on to the next round, I am consulting with my union, the NTEU, over a legal appeal. Tim, what were the main reasons cited by the two members of the committee who voted to reaffirm the decision by Stephen Garton to expel you? Being rude to Israel, basically. <laughs> That's basically it. There is a sort of a, uh, a more technical side to it where they claim misconduct through public comments, but they haven't criticised the way I do my job or anything about my job, but it's all to do with public comments, and the public comments, they say uh, some of them have been inappropriate and offensive to some people or to reasonable people. So it's a very low sort of benchmark. I've been arguing that there is, within the university sort of manager group, that there is more specific guidelines about intellectual freedom which say that they shouldn't really have anything to do with it unless there's intimidation or harassment or serious abuse and they haven't claimed any of those things they've just claimed that some of my comments have been um, and particularly the ones last year which were there was just two in relation to Israel were offensive or inappropriate are these comments made within the university grounds or outside the university social media comments on Twitter and Facebook basically and you identify yourself as a as a lecturer at Sydney University? Well, yes and no. I mean, that's a, sort of the bone of contention. It doesn't... But mostly they haven't been to do with my job. One of them is, however, one of them is material that I've used in my class. But it, I've, I've used it on social media also. It was a graph on how to interpret one of the Gaza massacres back in 2014. And basically it, I turned it into a an educational graphic to encourage students to look for independent evidence and identify interests in controversial areas, basically. Because generally speaking, we stay away from controversial areas with students because they go to the media and they get a lot of rubbish from the media and it's difficult to sort of ground discussion in that situation. But on the other hand, controversial areas are important and students have to learn how to read them. So this was, I thought, I was actually quite proud of this graphic, but... What happened was some people opportunistically seized on the fact that in the background there is a distorted flag of Israel and if you magnify it enormously you can see a the, the partial swastika overlaid on the Israeli flag. You can't see it at normal magnification and that's what they've uh, attacked me over. So someone's been out with their glass yeah. trying to find something that's going to pin you down. There are Israel lobbyists who look for these sorts of things and looking for a pretext to attack and the management has bought it for one reason or another. I mean, they do get a lot of money from foundations that are supportive of Israel, so that's where the pressures come from, basically. How have your students reacted to what's been going on? Well, there aren't any around, you know, because uh, university dies between November and, and uh, late February, so... Um, it, it hasn't been a time when there have been students around. There have been a couple of articles in the student media that's kept going. Unusually, I hadn't seen it that much before, but there has, the student media has kept going over summer. That is to say they've kept publishing online versions of their paper, if not print versions. But the articles have been fairly 
straightforward. They haven't been particularly agitating about about things. Last year, the um, there was a large petition from members of staff. About 80 of them, 80 academics, signed onto a petition opposing what management was doing. But that's about it. What happens now with your students? Well, the students come and go. You know, they move on. So I'm, I'm in touch with some of them again. You're supervising some PhD yeah, students? Yeah, I've got several PhD students and I had an honours student and so at the moment I'm, I'm still helping some of them but formally speaking because they they actually have kicked me out, they have closed everything, closed my email accounts and so on and uh, they, formally speaking, they have to find new formal supervisors. And in one sense have they closed the gate on you as well? Yes, absolutely, yeah. You saw that paper a while ago about a long list of journalists and academics who have been in a situation such as yours. Yeah, I've, I've seen a number in this country and also in, in the US, for example, who the Israel lobby have been trolling against. If you look more broadly than that, there's a number of other cases. There was um, a fairly well-known case, the Ros Ward case in Melbourne, which was also to do with public comment outside her job. There's been a few cases like that, but uh, in particular the ones that I've focused on are the ones where the Israel lobby has been trolling against uh, academics for their position on Israel, and in many cases they're trying to make it out that criticism of Israel is some sort of racial slur on Jewish people, which was raised in my case, but it didn't really, uh, there wasn't much substance in it, so they more or less dropped it, and they've fallen back on a very basic sort of, even more, even worse, in a sense, criteria for kicking someone out of their job, which is that they'd said something that was inappropriate, not even at their job. Because the enterprise agreements to do with academics are a little bit different to other employees in that we are meant to have greater freedom to speak out publicly and also to even to criticise our own employer, which most employees don't have. But in this case, the, the, the what do you say, the, the bar has been placed very low by saying that if they something say some comment is inappropriate, or offensive, that's sufficient to kick someone out. And that just goes completely against intellectual freedom. It does, and and what their response to that has been is to say, well, uh, the intellectual freedom provisions are there, but then you have to abide by the, all the rest of the code of conduct, and the rest of the code of conduct says we all have to be polite and friendly and so on, and so they can choose what they like in terms of criteria. That's what they're saying, and that's what the argument would be if I get back into court of law, which I'm working on at the moment, I'm talking to some lawyers this week, that's the main thrust of what we'll be arguing, that there are indeed intellectual freedom protections. How well the law stands up to that remains to be seen, but that'll be the main argument. So if this ruling stands, this is, this is going to mean more, even more self-censorship at universities? Yeah, I think you're right. That the self-censorship is where it immediately kicks in. I, I put out a, a statement um, a while ago saying that um, this would send a cold chill through academia because academics are a conservative bunch anyway. But if they see that someone like me can be kicked out from a, a permanent tenured job for more than being there for more than 20 years, they're going to say, well, I'd better be careful that I don't say something that offends someone. And that will make them even more conservative. And as you say, the, the self-censorship is the immediate impact of, of this sort of decision. Is this the first time something like this has happened at Sydney, to your knowledge? Well, with me, it's been bubbling along for almost two years, for, for over a year and a half. Basically, 
some of the media that have supported the wars that Australia's been involved in, in the Middle East in particular, have been attacking me and trying to pressure or goad or wedge the university against me, trying to say we'll use... Effectively, they've demonstrated that they will attack the university's reputation if the university doesn't do something against me, and eventually they've got a result. It may be more specific than that in the sense that I mentioned that there are foundations that support Israel that also fund the university, and increasingly there's foundations that are very conservative, let's say, foundations, including the Australian-American group that set up the U.S. Studies Centre, and now the you would have heard about the Ramsey Centre that's trying to sell the idea of degrees in Western civilization and so on. There's a number of those foundations that are putting pressure on the university to adjust the way it teaches. Obviously, you know, on the one hand, they're trying to get in courses of study that actually reinforce or, or put a, a rosier gloss on colonial history on the one hand, and on the other hand, squeeze out people like me who are critical of colonial history and imperial history. So there's a bigger picture going on there at the moment. We also have the university, and students have made this point a few times, the university has got contracts with big arms companies that are making money selling weapons, for example, to the, the UAE and the Saudis in the Gulf, which are at the root of a number of the wars in the Middle East at the moment. Yeah, I'm just thinking there might be people who many years ago were at the university would be quite horrified about what's happening now. Yeah, there are a number of contacted me, a number of uh, retired academics and current academics. They they are horrified about it, but um, the the problem is that the the overall social environment is closing in on us. That is to say, you know, we have unfair dismissal laws, but they've been watered down, and, um, and the laws are really pretty unsatisfactory. I'm about to try and test it out now to test out to what extent the, those laws will protect me. But um, there's been a process where pro-employer, let's say pro-corporate forces in politics have, have um, increasingly eroded those sorts of rights and the university in particular has become more of a corporation which is selling its brand name and uh, trashing its commitment to intellectual freedom in the process. What court are you aiming at to have your say? Federal law and the federal court is the one that's involved here but there are two processes. There's a commission set up for to look at sort of a quick, quick but not as accountable process of looking at unfair dismissals. And then there's a, a system of general protections still under federal law in the federal court. Are you still being paid at the moment? No, they've kicked me That's out. It. They've cut off everything. They've shut down my email accounts. I've been kicked out of the university. What about your super and all things like that? That's separate. They've, they've paid that out. Just very briefly, Tim Venezuela, your thoughts at the moment. So Venezuela... The good side of what's happening in Venezuela, it's another uh, one of many um, of the wars of the 21st century. We've got eight of them in the Middle East and several of them bubbling along in Latin America. They, they made an attempt, remember, last year to try and overthrow the government in Nicaragua with fake stories about a brutal dictator and so on. That failed. They brought in mercenaries from other parts of Central America to Nicaragua. In Venezuela, there's been a conflict, internal conflict for some time because there's a large, fairly strong and very vicious right-wing opposition there which has been, which has tried coups in the past and now our friend Donald Trump has uh, tried to foment the next coup in Venezuela. It's resulted in a very strong rally against that intervention uh, which has been very blunt and open, you know, in the, the style of 
that type of in- intervention from Trump is reminiscent of George W. Bush, that where you know it's very overt and there's no illusions about it. I think we could contrast perhaps the the Democrat interventions, the the Obama era interventions, as more deceptive and more with more of a gloss of these humanitarian. Uh, interventions. Trump is, is trying that with Venezuela. It's rallying a lot of support to the government at the moment, but there's still a big opposition there. So there is a, a tense situation in Venezuela. There's potentially the threat of uh, an external intervention because in Colombia next door there's seven US bases. But I myself don't think that's imminent just now, but there is the real threat of more internal violence because of this attempt to set up a parallel government inside. In any other country in the world, a person who declared themselves a president unelected would be would be arrested and charged with some some criminal charge. But in apparently the dictatorship of Venezuela, this doesn't happen. So there's a there's a tense situation. There is, on the other hand, a big rallying of support for Venezuela. Just yesterday, uh, I saw a, a picture, and it's circulating on the social media now of. Uh, a large number of ambassadors at the United Nations standing in support of Venezuela, countries representing more than half the people on earth, which is, isn't mentioned typically in the Western media. But there is a there is a strong welling of support to Venezuela. I don't think I've ever seen such lies in the media as are being told yeah. at the moment. When you think about the ABC and you think about the the Age mm. or the you know Sydney Morning Herald, the, the lies are absolutely blatant. Yeah. Well, and they're just repeating their government line, basically. That's the the awful thing about it, that I think that there was this idea that the corporate media in some way was the fourth estate, you know, holding holding power to account, but really there's no... You can't put a, you know, a piece of paper between the political line on the latest war between the corporate media and the states these days. If, the, if people criticise Canberra for going along with every war that Washington did... You can't really separate either the state media, the ABC and, and SBS, unfortunately, also, and the corporate media from those wars. They really, there's been no, I mean, this is one thing that motivated me to oppose the war on Syria, that there was, it was so monolithic, the lies being told about Syria for so many years. There wasn't a single part of the corporate media in Australia, the corporate or state media, media that had seriously criticised the war against Syria. Uh, and you'll see something similar happening with, with Venezuela now. Surely most thinking people realise that the main problem, or one of the main problems Venezuela at the moment is the sanctions by the US and their cohorts. These um, so-called aid that's supposed to be coming through Colombia, doesn't that break those sanctions? <laughs> well, the, the US sanctions have always been a matter of convenience. I mean, the way that the US has framed sanctions has been to say that will ban everything, you know, whether it's in relation to Syria or Iran or Venezuela or Cuba. But we will license people, license people in an arbitrary way to to do whatever they want, basically. I mean, they're also providing money to this supposed alternative government in, um, in Venezuela, you know, so breaking their own sanctions has never been a problem, really. Of course, you've got to remember they've sequestered or stolen billions of dollars of Venezuela's oil money, which in external accounts, and I think it's 80 tonnes of gold that the Central Bank of Venezuela has had in England. They've got their hands on it. They're not letting it go. And now they've brought some crumbs along to the border, which the Venezuelans call poisoned aid. I think $20 million, they say, of aid, and, um, and that's 
is the issue of contention at the moment. I mean, fortunately, the other side to that is that um, the, the partners of Venezuela, the investment partners, including Cuba, but also Russia and China, have been supporting Venezuela in some of the things that it lacks. For example, the other day, almost a 1,000 tonnes of medicine arrived from Cuba, Russia and China in, in Venezuela. So they don't need the crumbs that are put at the border of Colombia as a, as a type of a bait for, for intervention. The legality of stealing, I suppose you'd have to call it stealing the oil and the gold. Yeah. How does that work? Most of these unilateral sanctions by the European Union and the US, and the Europeans copy the US to a degree, they sometimes do it in a rather different way, and sometimes Australia, the sanctions that Australia buys into, for example, the ones against Syria, are copied a little bit more from the European style than the US style. But, uh, yeah, the, the, there's a huge question about their legality. They breach all sorts of laws, telecommunications laws, World Trade Organization conventions and so on. There's a, the Cubans have documented this very well because they've had these sanctions for 60 years and they present a report to the UN every October and uh, they, they document that. But international law, of course, is, you know, it's, um, it's simply not uh, applied or ignored when convenient by the big powers, basically. And it's very rare that little powers use international law against big powers. The Europeans and the US themselves fight amongst each other over international law, but international law has never really you know, had the teeth for little countries to use against big countries. Is this once again the curse of having oil? Yes, that's true. It makes the country a target. It also is, of course, the contributor to the actual internal problems of Venezuela, that it's been an oil economy and they've been trying to break out of that by sowing the oil, investing the oil into other areas. They've done that with some success under Chavez and Maduro, but it also breeds corruption. It breeds a whole lot of problems. And, um, for example, Venezuela didn't have a good agricultural system because for 100 years it was dependent on oil, you know. They've tried to break that with, with some success, but um, it is, you know, oil really doesn't help. You don't see any success stories in the world of countries just because they've had, uh, they've been rich in oil. But Venezuela has lots of other resources and they have been investing in their people, which is the important thing really in the last 20 years. And it's those people who are standing up and marching in the streets that we don't see about. Yeah, there are big rallies on both sides. It has to be admitted there's a big opposition, but there's also a big groundswell of support for Nicolas Maduro. He's his major problem has been to get a handle on prices and the currency, which has come under attack, but nevertheless, the government, you could say, could have done a better job with it. In other words, because prices are so unstable, they have to rely on the social programs to get, for example, food parcels to people. They've got a, a food parcel system. It means people aren't really starving in the streets, as the, as the media say. There are problems with shortages, but because they have strong social programs, there isn't the, the crisis that... Uh, that the Western media has claimed. In fact, an independent UN expert, Alfredo Zayas, uh, reported just fairly recently that there was no humanitarian crisis there, but he characterised the sanctions, which are certainly partially and, and to a large part responsible for the crisis, as crimes against humanity. So there is a new discussion taking place at the UN level about the, the criminality of these sanctions, and just recently a big network of mainly Latin American Individuals, I'm tapped into this one, so I know a bit about it, have written to the, the UN Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, the former president of Chile, characterising the sanctions against Venezuela as
as crimes against humanity. Now, if that process gets greater recognition at a UN level, it will be very interesting because the US at the moment has unilateral sanctions against about 25 countries. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Dan. And that, of course, is Dr Tim Anderson fighting the good fight against the University of Sydney. And it's coming up to four minutes to five o'clock and this is Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CI. We're asking you to ring up on 94198377 and find out how you can become a listener sponsor. Camp Anarchy is on over the long weekends, March 9th to 11th at Camp Eureka in Yarra Junction. The aim is to bring anarchists, families, friends and those interested together. Come share ideas, skills, food, music and laughter. There is a bunch of radical workshops and skill shares over the weekend. Check out our website, campanarchy.org or contact us on info at campanarchy.org or via the Anarchist Events Facebook page. Camp Anarchy is a 3CR supporter. Would you like to get involved in the decision-making process at 3CR? Nominations are now open in 3CR's Community Radio Federation elections. You can stand as a subscriber representative and have valuable input into the programming and future direction of this diverse and dynamic radio station. Nominations are due by Friday the 1st of March at 5pm. For more information, contact 3CR Station Manager on 94198377 or download the nomination form at the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. Forward slash people. Last Friday, Neil Blake, the current Port Phillip Baykeeper and long-time activist with the Port Phillip Eco Centre, came into the studio and I asked him first about the disastrous fire that happened in West Footscray last year and the impact on Stony Creek and what's been happening there lately. Stony Creek obviously in big trouble as a result of that fire and it was uh, not only the um, firefighting foams that we used to uh, extinguish it but the fact that there was a whole smorgasbord or cocktail of chemicals actually stored in the in the warehouse that went up. Those contaminants also um, escaped to the uh, stormwater system and therefore into the creek. I understand too that the site that was on fire and where the chemicals were being stored wasn't actually registered for that purpose and therefore it lacked the normal safeguards and uh, contingencies if a fire did occur, you know, so uh, just about everything that could go wrong did go wrong in that situation and quite a number of fish died that I saw uh, and there were plumes of um, film on the water surface coming out of the creek and into the arrow and down as far as Newport that I observed clearly the impact of the fire in West Footscray actually extended down into the into the bay. And what's the situation now? There's quite a massive clean up of the creek itself which if people are familiar with Stony Creek it comes out into the Yarra just uh, below the Westgate Bridge on the western side. There's a big stand of mangroves there too it's quite a beautiful spot we've been keeping an eye on those mangroves because um, the contaminants and I guess one of the major things about the firefighting um, foams 
is that they deoxygenate, they suck oxygen out of things. So, and that seems to be the one of the major causes of um, loss of life of fish, but also quite conceivably plants as well. You know, so keeping an eye on the mangroves because there were small plants, seedlings there, um, uh, which have definitely been impacted by the effect of the, the water quality. It's a wait and see, though, whether they recover or uh, they're permanently lost. Are mangroves fish breeding areas? Yeah, any areas where you've got an, uh, two s- systems meeting, I suppose. They're sort of on the edge of uh, you know, like uh, an ecotone, as they're known, where uh, you've got different microhabitats for certain small creatures to feed in and to colonise, then they will actually attract other species as well that are going to feed on them. So uh, very important areas for just life generally and as a localised uh, area. I mean, it's not like it's going to be whole bays depending on that, but incrementally we're losing those little uh, niche habitats uh, across the board in the, as we get, become more urbanised and the landscape becomes modified. What does the rehabilitation look like and who's paying for it? Uh, Melbourne Water are actually managing that rehabilitation and they've been, uh, well, initially they actually uh, were pumping a lot of the water out of the creek and taking it away to dispose of it. I'm not sure exactly where they take that to, but uh, I'm sure they've got (laughs) appropriate places to do that. That was the first thing, I suppose. And then uh, clearly there were blackened sort of surfaces on the the banks of the creek, etc. too, you know, some of that might have been cleaned up and taken away. There were also obviously a lot of dead wildlife and fish that had to be taken removed. That's the first stage, I guess. I'm not sure exactly where they're at now, but uh, I do see that they have got a, a community consultation process where they, people can contribute their views and, and obviously learn more about what's actually happening and participate in helping to clean up and restore the creek. That'll be a major cost, though, I mean, you know, to get it back to anything like it was. I guess it's fair to say it was a relatively degraded area because, uh, like many of our small creeks, they, they have effectively been just used as stormwater drains for many years, but... Um, there have been communities, though, starting to revegetate around the banks of them and uh, bring back life. So there were frogs in the creek, for example. There was a heron uh, nesting, you know, so people are obviously concerned about their much-loved heron. That uh, Those kind of natural icons that uh, people uh, really identify with in their local area. So the heron survived? I haven't heard what the fate of the heron was. Um, there was also a seal too, Fernando is known locally as of lift, uh, uh, who was hanging around the um, Yarra mouth too but for some time yes, that frequents that spot, so haven't heard about the fate of Fernando either. Scouts down at Geelong caring for their environment? Yeah, we've just been down to Geelong uh, yesterday. Um was part of the Street to Bay project where Scouts uh, Victoria... Uh, uh, partnering with the, the Echo Centre to uh, undertake street litter audits to give us um, a picture about where the plastics that are getting into the bay are coming from because there's no point sort of jumping up and down about <laughs> being in the bay unless you're going to sort of try and track it to the source and then you can do something about it. So uh, the street litter audits aren't attempting to clean up whole sort of massive suburbs or anything like that. There's just uh, reference sites that may be no more than 15 metres long and so, for example, yesterday we did six sites. One of those was at the main entrance to Deakin 
University in Geringhap Street in Geelong. In that 15 metres of just footpath and gutter and uh, about 1.2 metres of um, nature strip, almost 500 cigarette butts, which when you think about it, uh, not every 15 metres in the city is going to be like that, but many of them are not going to be that much better either. So there's just massive amounts of um, plastics that are Many people aren't aware that cigarette butts are actually made of plasticised cellulose. There's just huge volumes of that stuff on the streets in, in, the, in the catchments around the bay. Is it that it breaks down or is it that the fish or birds eat them? You hear various estimates of how long they might last in the environment, some say 500 years or some might say 60. What's the point? They still last a long time. And they also, apart from that, if they... The possibility of being swallowed by wildlife is um, they do carry toxins as well, you know, so uh, uh, that are generated in the smoke and possibly the growing of the tobacco. They're just not nice things to have in the environment. And uh, I said at the Port Phillip Bay Forum yesterday uh, where people had gathered to um, talk about their different projects to protect the bay that someone raised the question of container deposit legislation, which I'm certainly in favour of seeing that introduced to try and cut back on the amount of plastic waste that just gets left lying on the streets. How would but that work? That's a good question. There's various people say, you know, it's problematic, you know, because the poor little old granny who runs the corner store, you know, she's got to carry these bottles. and Yeah, so, but there are sort of like vending machine type um, setups where people can actually feed them into a, you know, through a machine and they get credits and, and uh, so that's a much more... If you had the right infrastructure, it's not going to be a problem. There's also other people say, oh, people steal the bottles and, you know, so they can get money. And so it's just a matter of finding the right infrastructure to make it work. But the point I was um, going to make, though, is that it's not just plastic or drink bottles and things that are our problem. That They are a big component of plastic waste, but there's still massive amounts of other single-use plastics that are enabled, are allowed to be produced and sold and distributed and ultimately don't often get disposed of appropriately. Like plastic straws, sushi fish, you know, those little soy sauce uh, containers, uh, tomato sauce, often associated with takeaway foods and things like that. And we need to have a product stewardship council, really, that's actually vetting anything that's going to be manufactured and distributed to say, well, look, you know, if you're not making it out of recyclable materials and if you don't have appropriate practices in place to get these things disposed of correctly, well, you better go back to the drawing board and find another way of doing it. And so I'd ask the question, you know, why is it that uh, cigarettes filters can be made of plastic when they're the most littered item in Australia and yet uh, they're still being made and allowed to be sold over the counter? got my own uh, suspicions as to why that is because of the taxes that are generated by the tobacco industry but the point is we've got this ongoing sort of influx of plastic pollution into our environment. And then the terms of recyclable and biodegradable, people seem to have different ideas of what that actually means. Yeah that's right, That's um, so we we need to become much more educated about so that that requires an investment too from government as well as the community in general there has to be an interest and a will to do it and i believe there is there are many people now much more concerned about plastic pollution than there were 20 or 30 years ago or even 10 years ago at a government level i think 
people are now understanding that there's been a problem for a long time that wasn't really recognised before. You know, once upon a time it was considered okay to just measure the volume of litter that was taken out of litter traps or something like that as a way of monitoring what's going on. But now there's a greater awareness that if we actually want to fix the problem, we have to do more detailed study, and that's what the street to bay audits are about so we can actually see where the hotspots are and what type of litter is being generated by different street usages. The early results show that the sports grounds are actually uh, big winners. <laughs> when I say winners, I mean they're in front in terms of the amount of waste that's been generated. It doesn't seem to matter if they put bins around, they still... I was watching, a, we've got a park at the back of our house and there's a young fella sitting in their... F- in their ute and they're hanging out their car and the, the, the can of drink just goes out in the footpath. Yeah. There's a bin there. Yes. Too much trouble. Well, that's right. And, uh, you know, it's a big ask to get someone to actually walk three metres to a bin, Jan. <laughs> well, <laughs> Especially I, when they're young, you know, like a, they've got a lot of things on their mind. Oh, well, they're not that young. They're driving a car. Come on. <laughs> no, I, I dropped, stopped there to have a look at Cowie Creek yesterday, uh, on the way into Geelong, and uh, there's a Macca's there, and I'm, no, their car park was quite clean, I have to say. But then I went down, uh, the creek itself is behind the McDonald's, a bit further, maybe a block or two down from there, and uh, there's a, a car track going down to it, and a big car park, and then um, there were some bins in front, on the edge of the car park, and then I looked down the slope, and there's all these um, plastic bottles and things that have just been thrown past the bins. <laughs> So it's amazing, really, uh, that people are so disconnected from their environment that they just don't get it, that they're actually killing themselves. And I believe that probably perhaps something to do with the fact that they never really had much nature experience when they were kids. Uh, I think it's got to start young, and on that note, I'd have to raise that the um, Summer by the Sea program that's just passed in January was a great success. You know, lots of activities delivered along the coast by a whole host of different groups. Well, there's dinosaur sort of uh, hunts and things like, you know, looking for fossils and uh, a bit kayaking and, you know, shell stuff. And the EPA did some really good events at St Kilda and Williamstown where they had they were doing water testing with kids and showing the kids how to do it. Uh, yeah, so just people um, at an age from maybe three to... 10 years old, uh, just having those positive experiences and actually being connected and a bit more connections uh, in terms of uh, the benefits that nature provides us and not just because it's nice and there's a whole host of other benefits that are economic benefits um, that we get out of of nature. Young people actually getting that experience and that awareness, uh, they're much further in front and I don't believe they'll be throwing cans out of the year in another 15 years' time. Just go back to the litter in the in the streets. I was interested to see one of the street sweeper machines mm-hmm. the other day. I think it was in Smith Street. Got a big sign across the side of it. Not these exact words, but rubbish in the gutter equals rubbish in the river, the sea. Well, that's good. Uh, I think people do need to be reminded of that because, you know, if you're walking down Smith Street, you can't see the sea. So it's, what's that got to do with us? Well, nothing, nothing to do with us. <laughs> so people are unaware of that connection to the stormwater system. And uh, yeah, so uh, that's that's important. I think that those messages are, are good out there. So that's terrific. 
What was the Port Phillip Bay Forum? Convened by the um, Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning and uh, uh, essentially uh, the aim of it was to enable people who have been had projects funded by the uh, Port Phillip Bay Fund over the last couple of years uh, to hear what each other have been doing and just sort of snapshots and progress reports, etc. There's just so much going on, which is terrific. Is that the job of the Port Phillip Bay Keeper to bring all those groups together? <laughs> no, well, um, we, we advocate for that sort of thing, you know, so, uh, and we have actually, we do that in our local area, but this project, though, well, we, we can't afford to hire the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre <laughs> or the catering. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's exactly the sort of stuff that we'd like to see happening. And so that people are, are not operating in silos. That's one of the big problems with the environment movement is that there's a lot of groups that, because they're widespread geographically, they might be trying to address the same issue, but they're doing it in a different way. Or, you know, they could actually be adding value to each other if they're more aware and um, helping each other rather than just focusing on their own little patch. Well, it was primarily um, an opportunity, as I said, for people to hear what others have been doing, but also a terrific networking chance too. You know, so there was over lunch, you know, there's lots of really animated conversations going on, and. Uh, yeah, so um, that's really the outcomes in a practical sense, I suppose, will emerge in six months' time. Because, but I'm sure, though, that there would have been groups that saw uh, stuff that others were doing that they f- f- can see where there might be an opportunity to partner in, in the future. So that's really where the, the real benefits will come from. A couple of the interesting projects there. Oh, well, one, for example, um, talking about loss of kelp in the bay. Uh, that was uh, Stephen Swearer from uh, uh, National Centre for Coast and Climate and uh, that the impacts of the loss of kelp and that, how uh, urchins uh, are actually the sea urchins are related to that in terms of overgrazing areas and uh, what's the best way to address this you know, that we still don't know and that's what Stephen was talking about uh, but Doing a scientific approach, though, so we can measure um, the impacts of of the urchins on the on the kelps and uh, whether or not they could be put back, and if, if whether culling the urchins is the way to go. Uh, uh, so there seem to me to be opportunities there. That just struck me as an example. Um, in the break, I was chatting with uh, one of the members from Jawbone Sanctuary, you know, uh, care group. Also someone from Ricketts Point, marine care, you know, and uh, we were talking about this topic of the urchins and what the situation was in, in their particular patch. And what are these poor little urchins? Well, uh, you know, little round, like tennis ball size or perhaps a bit smaller that uh, actually move across the bottom Shelfie. of the sea. Yeah, yeah. But, um, Why do they call them urchins? As a matter of fact, I was just lying awake last night <laughs> wondering that very thing. <laughs> it's a good question. That uh, they also, where they're, where they're very active, they call them uh, urchin barons. You know, so I think that's sort of referring to the fact they basically uh, clear fell any any of the algae that's growing on the or the, on the seabed. But anyway, uh, the point was I was trying to make was that at Elwood which is kind of in between uh, Jawbone Sanctuary and uh, Ricketts Point, there's a, a reef there 
which is not actually part of a sanctuary, but um, I felt that that might provide a, a good reference site for us to do some monitoring there and maybe do some experiments because uh, the sanctuary has got this extra layer of, of um, responsibility and, and certain constraints on what you might be able to do in terms of uh, experimental science, I suppose. So, uh, yeah, I just thought that might be a possibility where we could do something there that might help them in their management of the sanctuaries. A few years ago there was the, the dredging of the bay. Mm-hmm. Since then many of the or some of the local councils have complained about loss of sand. They've been trucking in loads and loads of sand. Is that still happening? Coastal erosion is significant, um, particularly... That was expected. Yeah, the, the problem is um, with it is that um, we've also had ongoing sea level rise since the 90s and probably earlier still, and so of around about a couple of millimetres a year, you know, so it sort of creates a little bit of a, an escape route for anyone who uh, wants to say, oh, it wasn't necessarily the channel deafening that did it, you know, so, <laughs> yeah, there it, so I was looking down at uh, Seaford and around that particular, the central sort of eastern coast of Port Phillip Bay, there's quite a bit of erosion happening there, as well as down at um, Point Nepean, that's uh, ongoing. Up in the top of the bay, uh, you know, there's particularly at Middle Park, there's always restoration going on there maybe every five to ten years where they pump sand in from offshore to replenish the beach. But that's probably um, driven more by the fact that St Gilda breakwater is uh, causing a uh, wave of intense action and uh, currents coming around the end of the breakwater and hitting the beach that are uh, causing that erosion. But, uh, yeah, there is certainly quite a bit going on in that area and there's going to be ongoing costs uh, into the future so um, down at Black Rock there's had been a proposal to put in a, uh, a sea wall a rock wall to protect the um, beach and the cliffs down there uh, but that has been uh, put back on the drawing board due to public angst about it so um, it'd be interesting to see what happens there. The other part of the the bay dredging was the material that was dredged. Yes, there has been some maintenance dredging too. It may even still be happening at um, Web Dock at the moment. And so uh, that's an area that um, would be interesting just to see what volumes have been taken away from there and uh, how it's being handled. I mean, one of the things that um, was the major approach to the dredging in the channel dipping project was that um, the contaminated materials that were taken out of the Yarra and the top of the bay were actually placed inside a a sea bund area uh, in a dredge disposal spoil ground uh, around about 20 kilometres south of Williamstown. That material was then going to be capped with clean sand which uh, was a key factor in enabling it to be Approved, I would have thought. Uh, well, I'm still not happy about it, but uh, uh, the fact that uh, that that um, disposal area had been approved in that, I think, in the longer term, that's going to be a problem for the bay. The question remains now is with this maintenance dredging, uh, whether or not that had any capping put on it. And I'll be trying to find out that uh, because um, if it's just sitting there exposed and uh, the, and it is contaminated material, then you have to ask, well, 
why is that a, a good thing to be doing? And there's a pretty good chance it will be contaminated. Oh, material. undoubtedly, yeah, there's no question. Yeah. Sounds as though as usual, you've got plenty to keep you busy. Yeah, well, it's hard to keep on top of it all, and that's again why uh, you know we're really keen for people to be working together rather than uh, you know everyone. Yeah, you know, there's uh, someone said to me yesterday, oh, what about this freeway that's going in down at Morty? I'll expose you'll be putting in a submission on that. We well, yeah. <laughs> I'd love to, but, you know, like, there's just so many things that... Uh, and if you are going to be put in a submission, well, I don't know about you, Jan, but I actually like to think that I've uh, done a bit of homework and I know what I'm talking about on it, you know, and so there's no point just sort of blaring away unless you actually really have done the proper research and have a, some evidence to back your case. I can't let you go without asking you how Captain Trash is going. Yeah, well, uh, he's uh, pretty happy, actually. He's, uh, he's made himself a new instrument um, out of bamboo. So it's the, called the Captain Trash Orchestra. Uh, I don't know where it might be an orchestra. I think that's something to do with the orchestra. But uh, anyway, so, yeah, it's made of bamboo, and uh, it's an interesting project in the sense that uh, it encapsulates, come up with uh, something that functions and is creative, but doesn't involve uh, a polluting sort of material and he also uses uh, reclaimed or, or um, reused material. So I had a uh, presentation to a school from New South Wales the other day from Year 12s and put that to them that that's what we need to be approaching our urban development with that kind of a mindset, you know. So uh, if we're really going to sort of hold back the galloping consumption that's driving climate change, we really have to take a step back and think, well, can we have a good life with actually just using what we've got and <laughs> having a bit of fun, you know, and just being thinking outside of the square rather than thinking we've just got to consume, consume, consume because that's uh, what's driving the um, climate change that we're experiencing in great buckets, as in uh, Townsville these days, and bushfires in Tassie, uh, we've got to put the brakes on. Well, if you didn't know that Captain Tresh was Neil Blake, you know now. Hoy there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St. Kilda. Why don't you come on down, do the Google thing, check out echocenter.com and find out how you can help us help you look after the planet. And by the way, don't forget to support 3C. For a number of years, activists demonstrated outside the headquarters of mining company Oceana Gold in Collins Street, Melbourne, on the last Friday of each month to highlight the environment and human rights abuses of their project in El Salvador. And finally, they have left that country. But they remain in the Philippines, in Nevaya, Biscaya, in Luzon, the largest island in the Philippines, where human rights have been violated for many years and the environmental impact has been devastating. Late last year, researchers from the US, Canada and the Philippines released a study on the impact of that mine titled Oceana Gold in the Philippines, 10 Violations That Should Prompt Its Removal and given the findings of the study, the researchers recommend denying the mining company's request for renewal of its 25-year licence after it runs out in June this year. 
I spoke with one of those researchers, Catherine Cummins, the research coordinator and Asia-Pacific program coordinator of Mining Watch Canada. Catherine, the company had an appalling record even before the mine began operating, didn't it? It did. This mine has a really long history of resistance, one of the longest that I'm aware of in the Philippines. And one of the reasons for that is that it's in an extremely remote location, but it's in a location where there are indigenous Ifugao who had been driven out much earlier, um, decades earlier, uh, out of their lands in the central cordillera of, of the of uh, Luzon, of the northern island of the Philippines. They've been driven out by mining. So they had arrived in DDPO and established themselves there. And, and it was very remote at the time. The only way to get there was through little paths through, through the forest on motorbikes and that sort of thing. And then lo and behold, uh, a company first called Climax Arimco, um, which was Australian-based, came and wanted to establish a mine there. And so there was resistance right away. And the years of struggle to, to stop a mine from, from occurring really were bloody. There were a lot of attacks on the community um, in those years because of their resistance. So it has a, a really sorted history. And then around 2006, Oceana Gold merged with what was then Climax Mining. And since then, the project has actually been pushed through. But even then, you know, the, the, one of the things that happened was just the way that land was acquired was quite brutal. Um, people's houses were bulldozed and there was, wasn't proper compensation and so there were a lot of human rights abuses and in 2011 the Commission on Human Rights in the Philippines actually issued quite a substantial report on the human rights abuses that had occurred up to that point. And what happened to that report? It's quite a remarkable report. It's one of the strongest reports on mining issues in, in, in the Philippines but you know I guess the question you're really asking is has it made a difference? And and it hasn't, because one of the things that's really remarkable is that now the mine has been operating for a number of years, and people are as much opposed to it now as they've ever been. So the interesting thing is that this year, the mine actually wants to renew its its 25-year lease. These leases um, are called financial and technical assistance agreements, and this company, this mine, this project has the oldest such lease in the Philippines. It actually dates to 1994, just before the Philippine Mining Act came into effect, and it's the first of these kinds of agreements between the company and and the state to develop a mine. And it's 25 years, but it, even though the, the lease has been there for 25 years, it's only been operating for, for a few years now because there's been so much opposition. And so now this, this agreement is, is set to be renewed, and people are adamant that it not be renewed. So there's a real struggle brewing again to make sure that it doesn't get this, this renewal. And the renewal is the first of these kinds of agreements, these FTAAs in the Philippines, and the process is completely murky. There's no clarity on what the process actually is and how people can, can intervene in that process. So people are really sort of concerned that they don't know how to have their voices heard in, in order to, to let it be known that they don't want this mine. So there are petitions being signed, and the, the, the community has you know, made its, its voice heard through petitions and resolutions and that sort of thing. 
Has it gone against the people, the fact that they actually came from another area and they don't have land rights? Yeah, this is a really big problem. So, but they did come from, you know, it's quite a long time ago. I mean, most of the Isabel that are there have been there since the 60s. So they've been there for a long time. But nonetheless, you know, that does make their rights more precarious under Philippine law. And the company, of course, argues that it doesn't have indigenous people that it's dealing with because that would increase the onus on the company to get what they call free prior and informed consent. But the company denies that it's actually dealing with indigenous people. Of course, the community is largely Ifugao, but, you know, because the company's saying, yes, that they've sort of come down from the mountain province, they're not naturally, they haven't been here naturally, you know, that it's sort of ignoring the fact that it's actually mining on land that, that was in the hands of, of indigenous people. You've been there a number of times over the last few years. Have you noticed the situation both for the people and the environment deteriorating over time? What I really noticed the last time I was there, which was in October of last year, October 2018, was the increased threat level to people um, themselves. And this was very shocking because I was slated to arrive there end of October, and in the course of October... A really serious event occurred, which is called red tagging in the Philippines, and it's it's now quite common throughout the Philippines, but it, it generally precedes extrajudicial killings. And what happened was that overnight, large signs appeared along the main thoroughfares through the province of Northern Vizcaya, where this mine is in northern Luzon. And on these signs were the names of a whole bunch of organizations which, as it turned out, are all organizations, either provincially and a few were, were national organizations, that have been involved in one way or another in supporting the community in its opposition to this mine. So these signs went up all along the main highway and, and along sort of the main, the main routes. And then the next thing that happened was a pamphlet was being distributed along the roads at bus stops and through the communities, and eventually the pamphlet reached the DPO, and there were 27 names on this pamphlet. And all of the names, and some of them were odd, some of them were wrong. They were just wrong names, although people think they know who they might have been, and one person, nobody knows who they were. But all of the names that were recognizable, which were most of them, were all people who had, in one way or another, opposed the mine or supported the community of the DPO that is opposing the mine. And so it included lawyers who have been active in, in advising the community or supporting community members who've been jailed because of their opposition. It included one provincial board member who is also a lawyer, but who is also an advisor to the community. It in, included a priest and then students, but also people from the DPO themselves. And the accusations on these signs and the accusations on this pamphlet are all that, that these people these organizations named on the signs and these people named on the pamphlet in one way or another are associated with the communist guerrilla movement in the Philippines, the New People's Army. And that is a, a classic sort of pattern throughout the Philippines right now that people get what they call red tagged. They get, a, they get accused publicly of being associated in one way or another with the communist guerrilla movement. And that puts a huge target on them. They then become sort of basically free game for for being killed. And this is happening 
it's really sweeping throughout the Philippines. And so this happened in October in 2018, and I arrived at the end of October. And when I went up there, you know, people came and talked to me. They told me that they were on this pamphlet. They showed me the pamphlet. They showed me the signs. And it was, you know, the, the fear was palpable. People felt that they were being targeted because of their opposition to this mine and that they, their lives were now directly in danger. And, and this was very noticeable for me, especially when I also went to the community. People were very concerned about where I was going to sleep because people didn't want it to be known that I had stayed in one house or another house because then that may, again, increase their risk. So I had to be very careful and I couldn't stay you know, in the community as long as I, I normally would have done. So what you're saying is there's no mention of the mine at all in any of these red tags? No, there's no mention of the mine at all. There's no mention of anyone actually, you know, no one has signed the pamphlet that was distributed or the signs that went up. But when you talk to the people, so one of the things we did was we, we actually invited, I invited some of the people who've been red tagged, named on this pamphlet, who are from the DPO itself. And one woman who's actually from a science organization, it's a a non-governmental organization that um, does science on behalf of communities, and she was also named, and her organization was named, and they're actually based in Manila, but she personally was named because she's done water sampling on behalf of the community to um, be able to, to demonstrate that the water around the mine is contaminated. And so she was named, her organization was named, and she and four people from the DPO came with me to the embassy, the embassy, the Canadian embassy in Manila, and we had a conversation with the Canadian embassy because this is a Canadian company, and we felt that the embassy needed to know that there was, this was a very targeted attack on people who are opposed to this mine, but who, you know, otherwise were, were, you know, were legitimately expressing their right to, to oppose this mine. And in that conversation, the embassy actually asked them, well, how do you know who did this? And they said, well, we think it's the military. And the embassy asked, well, why do you think it's the military? And they said, well, because there have been large military deployments in that area. And I had actually seen that the year before. I had seen these large military deployments. And they said that during the meetings that the military was holding with communities around that, in that municipality of Kasibu, the military were actually saying you have to be very careful. There's New People's Army, which is this communist guerrilla movement, is active in this area, and they were naming people and organizations and saying these are people and organizations who are opposed to the mine and they're associated with the NPA. So the military were directly implicating people who opposed the mine as having associations with this banned communist guerrilla movement. So that's why people were saying, you know, it's, it's no one signed their name to the pamphlet or the signs, but but the threat is, is clear. In that intervening time between October and it's now February, have any of those people named been attacked? Not to my awareness. And this doesn't always necessarily happen right away. And we're also very hopeful that we've raised concern around this politically. Um, it's also been brought to the Commission on Human Rights in the Philippines, and they are investigating this. People also have support, and that's not always the case, but they have support from, from the local government units, from the governor. The governor is very much supportive of the people in the DPO and has spoken out against this red tagging incident and, and is also supporting their opposition to the mine. He sees the mine also as a threat 
to the waterways in Nueva Vizcaya. This is a province that is what they call the fruit basket for Luzon. A lot of the valleys there are very fertile, and a lot of the fruit is harvested and then brought to Manila for sale. So this is a province that actually can do really well on its, particularly its fruit production. The waterways that originate at the mine also end up in the largest river system in the Philippines, the Cagayan Valley and the Cagayan River. And so the governor is very concerned about protecting the waterways of the province. So he's been very supportive, and that may have some protective effect. I'm not sure. What did you actually find while you were there this time in, in terms of the environment? And, and who did you speak to about? Or is it obvious what the problem is? Yeah, so we, I met with village councillors, people who are elected, the elected officials of the village, as well as there's two um, organizations within the village, Sapatni and um, Desama, and met with members of both of those organizations, both of which are also opposing the mine and have a long history of opposing the mine. And I met with with some of the villagers who have been displaced by the mine and are still trying to get compensation for basically having lost lands and and houses through the mine. And I also met with some of the labor leaders, and that's another interesting angle on all of this. The company has been retrenching workers recently, and what the vice president of the union told me was that what they've been doing is firing everyone who's over the age of 50. And then, and these are people who have a long history of in mining or, or know the mine well because they have the longest history of working there but they're being retrenched and then they're being brought back as contract laborers but without the benefits that they would normally have. So even people who have who, are, who have worked or are working at the mine are, are speaking out. There was a community meeting in the capital of Casibu of the municipality and the mayor and the vice mayor hosted this meeting. And so the community came out to speak out about the issues in the DPO and the company sent two lawyers, and they sent their community relations person. And it was a whole day of people standing up and speaking at the microphone, both this vice president of the union and the elected officials from the village and then just ordinary people from the village, and telling the, the mayor and the vice mayor what the problems were. And then the company was supposed to respond. But the two lawyers who were there kept going to the mic and saying, well, we can't really answer these these allegations because we, we're not the right person. You need to talk to the general manager or the manager of the mine, and he wasn't there. And then a new date was set for that meeting, which was after I had left the Philippines again, and that meeting never happened. It was canceled. So th- there's a real problem with the company being responsive to the concerns that the people are raising, and this is just aggravating the situation. You are listening to Catherine Cummins, the Research Coordinator and Asia-Pacific Program Coordinator of Mining Watch Canada, speaking about the Oceanic Gold Mine in Luzon, the Philippines. You're saying that you've found that mining companies have repeatedly violated mining laws. I wouldn't imagine that the mining laws are very strict even now. Well, and the problem is that, you know, companies very often do operate with impunity in the Philippines, and, and that's more so now that they can actually make use of the military to allow them to continue, even when there's very clear opposition from the community to their operations. Yeah, the mining the mining laws that exist, many of them have been breached. This is a report that we issued last year, on October 31st. Mining Watch Canada put out a report together with an organization in the U.S., the Institute for Policy Studies, 
and we detail the, the various abuses, environmental, human rights, at the mine and the various laws that pertain to those abuses. But, but as you say, you know, just like the report that was put out by the Commission on Human Rights that details human rights abuses, it, it hasn't stopped the mine from going ahead. And people are very concerned that even their opposition is not going to be enough and, the, and that there's just going to be suddenly a, a permit issued for another 25 years and, the, and, the, and they're going to have to again put their lives on the line because what they've been doing to try and curtail the mine is every time the mine tries to carry out drilling around around the actual pit, so they're drilling, they're trying to have a drilling program around the mine to see if they can establish other areas where there may be gold or copper, and people are blockading the roads so that they're not allowing the drilling equipment to go by. But these blockades have been going on for for like over a year. They'll maintain these blockades, and and this is of course very stressful, and it's. It now increasingly making people feel like they could be targeted for, for, for doing that. So it's a very tense situation around the mine right now. Does the mine also have a private army or do they just rely on the government army? They have their own private security. Um, and then, as you say, they've got, they've got the, the military essentially now present in the, in the area and ostensibly because of the New People's Army, but that was another very interesting question that was asked at the embassy. The Canadian embassy person we met with asked the community members that were, were there whether they had seen any New People's Army, this is this communist guerrilla movement, in the area, and they said, no, we haven't. And later when I talked to them, one of the women said, the last time I've seen NPA was in 1986. So... You know, they seem to be quite clear that, yes, they might be around, but they certainly haven't seen them. They're certainly not around the the actual mine site, and these people are certainly not associated with, with the new, new People's Army, and yet that's being used as, as an excuse for militarizing the area. I should mention that the threat is quite substantial. When I was there, I did do water sampling, and it was to follow up on water sampling that was being done by this organization that I mentioned earlier. It's ADCAM is the name of the organization based in Manila that was supporting the community by doing water sampling in, in the year before. And they were doing that together with a Japanese organization that was supporting the community as well. And one of the Japanese NGO members who was in the community in 2017 was staying, I won't mention which house, but he was staying at a particular house and it was the day before he was going to leave and the owner of that house was out with his truck and the truck was suddenly surrounded by military and they they surrounded the truck, stopped the truck and had their, their long arms, as they called it, drawn and they approached the driver of the truck and they asked for that the person from the Japanese organization who was staying at his house. And they asked where he was and they said, why is he staying with you, where is he? And he wasn't in the truck, and so they let him go. They let the, the driver of the truck go. And then the next day, this partner of Mining Watches from this Japanese organization actually had to get smuggled out of the community. He was hidden in the trunk of a... Well, he was actually hidden in a, partly in the trunk of a, of, a, of a vehicle, and then he got on a, a bus, and he was sort of hidden by people in the bus, sort of like people surrounded him on the bus, and so he was able to get out that way. But... Yeah, this was very threatening, and this is why it was difficult for me to stay there, because it was difficult for people to be able to host me, which would normally be, you know, I could normally stay there and just stay with someone and and, 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 and move around freely, and that was all much more tense now. I actually got a letter from the mayor 
of the municipality saying that I had the right to be there and to do the water sampling, and then the, the village captain also gave me a letter from him on, on, in addition to the letter from the mayor saying that I would have the right to be there. This was all, you know, very carefully done to make sure that, you know, that my security would be guaranteed, but also that anyone questioned about why I was there and whether I had the right to be there would also be able to show that I had been given permission. Can you describe what the rivers and streams look like? And you say that it's a, a food bowl of the Philippines. If they expand this mine, what is it going to do to the environment? It's already depleted, degraded. What's the it's scenario? It's definitely of- degraded. Yeah, it's definitely degraded. And so there's two really major problems with the water water around the mine now. One is pollution of waterways, and the other is depletion of the of the groundwater. So the mine has been operating as an open pit, and then in 2017 it started operating as an underground mine. But it's dewatering continuously, and it's basically depleting the aquifer. And so people's wells have run dry. And so access to water is a real problem for the community now. And so now they're having to buy water. The, the, the company is supplying bottled water, but people have to buy that. And so suddenly now they, you know, water that they used to be able to just get through their wells, they now have to spend money to, to buy. The other problem is uh, contamination of the waterways around the mine. And this is particularly a problem where they're trying to use the water to irrigate rice fields, and the rice fields are, are, are dying. And so people showed me where they used to be able to get water from the river and, and irrigate the rice fields, and, and now that they can't do that anymore. And some of the water sampling that's been done by this organization based in Manila with the Japanese organization has actually shown levels of metals in the water that would, in fact, have that kind of effect on rice because they were higher than the levels of metals that would be allowed in Japan because of their impact on irrigation, use of irrigation for rice. So there is a real problem there in in that sense. The other problem with this mine, as with all mines, is that the longer you mine, the more waste you're creating, and that waste has to be contained in what they call a tailings impoundment. So this is a waste impoundment. And that tailings impoundment is not an engineered impoundment. It doesn't have a, 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 a like a a plastic liner, it's not sealed off from the surrounding environment, it's just in a valley and it's just right up against the trees and against the valley. So it's it's a very it's a very cheap tailings impoundment. And there's a huge concern and for any of your listeners who may have been paying attention to what happened recently in, in Brazil where a dam burst and the waste flooded out and, you know, affected hugely affected downstream communities. There's a couple of hundred people who, well, I think it's 150 now that they're saying are dead and, and there's still more people missing, so they're thinking that death toll could rise over 300. And people are very worried about that. They're very worried about all this waste that's being piled up behind this, this dam in this tailings impoundment that is not a fully engineered impoundment. So that's sort of hanging over people's heads as well. What about the health impacts of the people in the area as well as the workers at the mine? One of the main concerns that people have been expressing is, again, related to the water, talking about when they try to bathe in the water or use the water 
or you know to, to to wash things that they that they get sores and I have actually seen that and some of the people showed me the kinds of sores that they're getting which are quite common you see this quite a lot around mines where people are in contact with water that one way or another is contaminated by the mine and then they get they break out in these sores the other main concern is dust because there's a lot of dust that's kicked up by the vehicles around the mine and that is, again, a concern that's more than just a nuisance because this dust is very fine. It can get in people's lungs. And then there are, there's been quite a lot of documentation around the kinds of um, health concerns that can arise from, from continuously breathing this kind of mine dust. The other thing that people talked about was the fact that roads have been blocked, roads, normal access roads that they had to market have been blocked as a result of the mine, and so they now have a much longer route that they have to take to try and get their products to market, and so this is also having an effect on, on the economy. It's a very depressed economy around the mine. People are quite quite impoverished, and they say it's gotten a lot worse because they've lost access to their land. What about noise pollution? Do they have explosions, drilling? Yes, obviously. So the mine is operating 24-7, and... The village is right up against the mine. Like, the, 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 there's almost no separation. There's just a bit of a, a barrier between the houses and the mine. And so, noise pollution is something, and I, you know, staying there overnight, like, you just, there's no time that you're not hearing the, the noise from the mine. The vehicles are continuously operating. But the other thing that people also talk about is when there's blasting, that the houses, because they're so close to the mine, are, are also affected. There's, the houses are getting cracked, and they're having to spend a lot of money to try and fix these houses. And they've brought this to the attention of the company time and time again, and, and this is just an ongoing concern. that they. This is one of the things they also raised on that community day that, that the mayor and the vice mayor hosted. It's one of the concerns that people raised. Also, you must feel as though you're, in a sense, beating your head against a brick wall because... All this is known, it's been known for years, yet nothing happens. Exactly, exactly. And this is, you know, and it's, it's also so frustrating because it's so typical. All of these concerns, concerns with contamination of water, depletion of groundwater, noise contamination, dust, health issues, particularly around children, people being forcibly displaced from their homes and no adequate compensation for loss of land and loss of houses, labor issues, all of these things, and particularly also the concerns around, you know, the piles of, of mine waste and, 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 the, and the risk of a dam breaching and the threat that that poses for people. All of these things are, are typical of mining and they're all major concerns, but they're, of course, worse in a, in a political situation where people where it's actually dangerous for people to speak out. People can organize, and they can, and they have been doing that around this mine. People have organized, and they have at least stopped the drilling program at times. But now they're feeling that that's even that, you know, the risk to them personally, even to speak out and to try and oppose and, op, you know, try to stop the mine from expanding is becoming extremely risky and that has a lot to do with the political climate in the Philippines right now where you have, you know, a, a, a president, Duterte, who openly speaks about the right of, of the army to take up arms against the population if people, you know, violate all kinds of, you know, rules that he's, he himself sets out as a, a, more or less as, a, as an autocrat or a dictator. And so 
there's a lot of extrajudicial killing in the Philippines. It's as bad as it was under the Marcos years, and, and there's a lot of fear among communities and, and activists, environmental activists, and, and human rights activists who are being targeted. Where does this leave the local governor? So the local governor is actually very supportive of the community and very concerned about this mine and also would prefer to see it shut down and has been vocal about that. The way he comes at that concern is through protection of waterways. He sees the contamination of the waterways around the mine as a direct threat because that is the headwaters of a number of major rivers that originate in Nueva Vizcaya and that are used for irrigation of these these fruit fields, you know, that, that is one of the major exports of this province. But then the waterways actually enter into the Cagayan Valley and the Cagayan River, which is the biggest river system in the Philippines. So his approach to opposing the mine and supporting the local people is as governor uh, in his capacity of someone who needs to be able to protect the waterways of the, of the province. What to be done? What can be done? <laughs> Well, really, the same things that always are done around mines, people stand up. No matter what the risk is to themselves, they, they continue to stand up and they continue to oppose. And this is what they told me when I was there in October. They said, you know, we may die, we may lose our lives, but we're doing this for our children, we're doing this for our, our, our homeland. This is where we're from, this is where we live, where, where else can we go? They feel like the mine has only been operating for a number of years, it's four years, five years, something like that, and they're, they're feeling like, you know, there's still a chance to stop it from becoming larger. And so there's still some hope that they can, that they can speak out, and, and they are speaking out and, and opposing the expansion of this permit. But it's a, it's a struggle that can't be won just locally. I mean, pe- the risk to local people to stand up and say no is, is great, and yet they're doing it. But they have to also be supported provincially, and they have to be supported nationally. And so there are also organizations based in Manila that are supporting the the local communities, and those, again, are partners of Mining Watch. So we're trying to build a bit of a coalition to raise concern around this. And, of course, Mining Watch Canada, my organization, because we're Canadian, and this mine has headquarters in Canada, we obviously can't be the ones to speak to the, the Philippine government that people need to do that themselves, but we can we can raise concern around this here in Canada and say that, you know, the, the, the issues that are surrounding this mine are issues that the mine would not be able to do in Canada if it was operating in Canada, so we, we raise it that way, and we raise it by bringing these issues to the, to the embassy in Manila so that the embassy is aware of the fact that people's lives are being threatened and they're being accused of being associated with a communist guerrilla movement just because they opposed the mine. And, you know, the hope is that the Canadian embassy will also start talking to some of the Philippine, you know, through, to, through diplomatic channels, we'll talk to the Commission on Human Rights in Manila and, and other officials of the government, so that we're hoping by raising the profile of this, of this issue that that will have some protective effect for the local people, because at least the army and the government will know that people are watching this situation and if they can be somewhat protected then they can obviously be more comfortable voicing voicing their their opposition there is hope Catherine because it worked in El Salvador yes there is one of the really great sources of inspiration and and one of the things that does 
that people tell me is keeping them going and, and giving them some courage is the fact that Oceana Gold also had a, a proposed mine in El Salvador and also faced huge opposition in El Salvador to that mine. And in the end, the community opposition to that mine led to the government of El Salvador agreeing not to give a permit to the company. And the company then sued the government of El Salvador, and this went through an international, uh, what they call ISDS, International State uh, Dispute Mechanism, but they, but the government of El Salvador won in the end. It took many, many years, and it was very, very stressful, but the El Salvadorian government won, and so Oceana Gold was never able to develop that mine in El Salvador. And what's really important about that is that the governor of Nueva Vizcaya, actually went to El Salvador and spoke to the people there and talked about the struggle against the Didipio mine and was able to tell people in El Salvador, you know, this mine in the Philippines, we've only had it for a number of years and we already have so many problems, so you're absolutely right to be opposing this mine in El Salvador. And, yet, and the people in El Salvador were very concerned about potential water contamination if that mine had gone ahead, and the governor was able to say, well, you're absolutely right to be concerned about that because those are the problems we're facing. And so the Oceana Gold was finally booted out of El Salvador. And so this story and this, this fact is known among the people in Didipio, and this is one of the things they always talk about. You know, the, our, our brothers and sisters in El Salvador were able to get rid of this company. We need to... We need to keep fighting. We need to we need to have the same victory. Great. Thanks, Catherine. And that was Catherine Cummins from Mining Watch Canada speaking about the Oceanic Gold Mine at the Dipio in Luzon in the Philippines. That's all for me for the program today. I will be back next week at 4 o'clock. But stay tuned in about two minutes' time for Done by Law. And as I said, see you then. <laughs>